0: All right, welcome back to another episode of Esoteric Artifacts. Um, this is episode number eight. Now I'm back with uh, Dr. Jared Rivera here visiting us again. Uh, Want to continue some of our discussion from last episode, talking about healthcare in general, but we specifically focused on Medicare, Medicaid. Um, you know some of the issues with pandemic-related policy. We didn't really get into some of the uh, subjects that we really wanted to talk about, and we wanted to just provide a little bit of clarification and expand on some of that. So, um, yeah, I, d- I
1: do have to correct you there. I think um, the more I've gone through my training, um, the more I don't like being called a like Doctor Rivera. Like, I think when you start off uh, your first <laughs> year, it's like you introduce yourself as Doctor Rivera to everyone that you talk to in the hospital, and then after two or three years you start to realize I don't know nearly as much as I need to. I'm, I'm not as, I'm not where I, where at a position where I should be, you know, acting like I'm in some position. So, um, I I hope that um, anyone listening does not think that, uh, I'm someone that prides myself on being called well well that's
0: why you let other people introduce you like that you're not the pretentious one referring (laughs) to yourself as Dr. Rivera but I mean I do think it's worth it like for the sake of this Uh, we kind of have to like point out that you are you are credentialed you know yeah yeah no I appreciate that um but yeah no I, I can though I have no level of education close to yours I can relate in that if I did have your education level I would probably feel the same way about it yeah yeah um and you know we we're we're surrounded by a lot of doctors uh so we we know how very human yeah they are (laughs) oh yes yeah
1: definitely yeah and that's something that um that i think that goes unnoticed is uh we have you know doctors in general have to or have kind of been trained to put on this this facade that um you know that they know what they're talking about that they and and it's for a good reason you don't want to go you know, go see a doctor, and then be questioning everything that they say. But um, that goes to say, you know, this um, this little journey of kind of diving into the healthcare industry in general um, has kind of been just another thing that's opened my eyes to how little we we really know. Um,
0: Absolutely. Yeah.
1: So, and and that's been humbling, and and just yeah. like just like any other part of my training, um, and eventually it gets to a point where you you know, you realize that you just need to accept and, and address those, those knowledge gaps and try and fix that. But, um, yeah, no one's, no one's perfect. And it goes for any profession.
0: I will say in my experience, uh, and I, knowing a lot of physicians, um, you know, of all walks of life, like young, mm-hmm. you know, ex- very experienced, retired, um, it's pretty rare to see somebody have that, uh, approach and that sentiment that you have, um, especially so early in your career. Um, there's definitely, I think people that know doctors well will note that there's uh, you know, there's a level of God complex that's yeah. going on there with a lot of them, right? Yeah. And you know, it's, it, to, to some degree it's earned because you, know, you are literally saving people's lives. Like mm-hmm. it, that's going to go to your head to some degree. Um, when you are highly valued in society, you're very highly compensated, um, you spent a long, you, know, you, were, you were on a long road to get to that point. So of course you want to feel some sense of achievement in having completed that that path and then and, and it's not over, right? You know, mm-hmm. you're continuing your education constantly mm-hmm. if you're a good doctor, that is. And uh and yeah, at the end of the day, especially certain types of doctors, doctors that are, you know, real rock stars within their profession. Um, like you really see that God complex and just that yeah, complete unwillingness to like approach anything with a humble mindset, I think. Yeah. Uh, and that's the biggest
1: downfall for Uh, any, any profession that you become an expert in, um, an expert is once you, once you think that you've attained all the knowledge that's possible, uh, you stop growing, you start to, that's, that's when it becomes dangerous. You can, you know, you can make a bad business decision. You can lead someone down the wrong. If you're a consultant, you can make a bad uh, recommendation. Mm -hmm. Uh, and, and if you're a doctor that could end up being someone's life. So, um, I think that's important for, um, I think that's an important thing to, to learn is, is to have that understanding of, okay, I have the knowledge, I have, uh, what I need to do to do my job. Um, but I'm not perfect and I don't know it all. And, um, that's something that's, that's always been valuable for me is, is to continue to, to fill in those knowledge gaps because it's never, it's, you're never going to have all the information that you need. You're never going to be at the top Um, and you should never feel
0: like that, Um, and I think that's, I like
1: that, I like continuing to grow. That's a really healthy
0: attitude to have, I would say, and um, like people that you know are going to persistently drive themselves Mm -hmm. further to excellence and never rest on their laurels, like have that mindset. I, I think probably a lot of like some of the top professional athletes, I would imagine they have that mindset internally at the very least mm-hmm. um if not what they're projecting outwards yeah. uh, for marketing reasons like internally they're probably always like i am you know i'm i'm, I'm mediocre you know i need to get better mm-hmm. even when they're at the top of the game and mm-hmm. uh i i share that mindset with you i i think i would not be content with what i believe is mediocrity and i being one of my own, own harshest critics i consistently think what i'm doing is mediocre and needs to be better mm-hmm. and uh yeah, there's just there's so much out there to learn. None of us can ever fathom learning a fraction of it within our lifespans. Mm-hmm. You know, the mortality like that's that's why lifespan is uh, such a serious issue for you know for for humans. Mm-hmm. It's uh we, yeah. We were just talking um a few minutes before we started recording. Like, do you think Jeff Bezos, um you know, or Elon Musk, like one of the richest men on, on the earth, would give up? Every single thing they have, if they could get back even 20 years of life, mm-hmm. uh, I, I, I think so. I, th- I definitely think they yeah. would um, yeah. because youth cannot be regained. And uh, like a ton of, I mean, a ton of these uh, billionaires are obsessed with trying to figure out like how they can live uh, for longer. And yeah. I mean, there's some of those guys like, um, I don't remember who he was. He was one of the Rothschilds uh, though, you know, part of the banking family um, guy had, I think like five hearts put in him like by a certain point it's like obviously like he owned the hospital It probably owned the wing you know like yeah. it, it donated a, probably a ton of money to that sort of research sure. as well but like also one guy got five hearts <laughs> at the end of the day yeah you know? yeah yeah
1: <laughs> yeah um and i that's something that i like to do too is kind of pick the brains of uh you know the older generation um i've talked to a lot of the people that um you know my attendings who are uh in charge of Uh, training me yeah and um i'm gonna get him that flies (laughs) it's like not it's not moving he's been following Um, me all day but yeah like kind of you know asking them you know at the end of your career you know you're training me coming in uh you know where's where's your mindset at like what kind of things do you look back at and and you know wish you would uh have known from the start Mm -hmm. and um actually very consistently, like multiple of, uh, you know, my superiors or, um, my, uh, just people that are kind of mentoring me, um, have said that, you know, when you get towards the end of your career, um, you, you're never going to look back or them personally, they never look back and say, you know, I wish I would have picked up that extra shift. I wish I would have done that extra, Gotten that extra um, title or that extra degree or or worked a little harder, mm-hmm. um, pretty consistently. They say, "I wish I would have taken more time off. I wish I would have spent more time with my family. Uh, just enjoyed the journey." Uh, and you know, a lot of them are well-rounded people. It's not. It's not even like they're yeah. you know, you know, crazy in their head and in the clouds. Like a lot of them are well-rounded, but it's never enough. Um, it's never enough time to enjoy it, enjoy your family, uh, and it's. Ne- None of them would ever go back and say, "I wish I would have picked up that extra shift, taken that extra Absolutely job."
0: Absolutely not. And uh, I mean, life is so fleeting. You know, um, you know, we both know a, a number of people that have passed away mm-hmm. uh, in, in this past year and, and last year as well. Um, just seeing that play out and wondering, you know, you know, just just the value of of spending that time while you have it, mm-hmm. um, because it's not always expected. We don't know, um, how life comes at us. I, I've definitely had my perspective shifted. You know, I had mm-hmm. a near death experience a few years ago, like a very serious car accident. And, uh, yeah, since then, I, I'd say I, I live fundamentally differently now. I, I, I try to take each day, you know, to its fullest. And, uh, uh, you know, sometimes we get caught up, uh, still, but you definitely try to, make the most out of your time out of your relationships Mm -hmm. and uh yeah i I think what you're saying is important
1: Mm -hmm. and that's i mean that's you can look at that as a huge blessing for you in your life i mean not many people
0: get that wake-up call i mean yeah for for to have have such a near-death experience at a young age like i i I actually consider it a privilege a lot of people might look at me like i'm crazy but Mm -hmm. i say it's one of the best things if not the best thing that ever happened to me um because of how much it transformed my life yeah yeah yeah, um, but with physicians, especially, you have these type A personalities, right? Um, that a lot of them, uh, especially these days, you see a lot of them. They're they they're not getting into it primarily because it is necessarily their passion. It is a very high paying profession, and it is mm-hmm. a means to early retirement for a lot of people, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so a lot of them are just so on this path of like, you know, how can I? How much money do I need to have banked? to be able to like just take life easy yeah. and um, especially cause it's a, it's a high stress lifestyle, man. Yeah. We've seen how much burnout has happened in nursing, in physicians. Yeah. And as, as they uh, one thing I've noticed is they've really been expanding the role of nurses, nurse practitioners, physicians, assistants. Mm-hmm. Um, do you think that, you know, we could even see like uh, an environment potentially where physicians are starting to be replaced in mm. that?
1: Uh Oh, that's a tough one. Uh, it's definitely we're definitely feeling that kind of pressure. Um, and I guess I'll start off answering that by saying I think anyone that goes into uh any sort of healthcare, um, I'll I would give them the benefit of the doubt because I think the majority of people, um, whether it's a physician, whether it's a nurse, whether it's a nurse aide, um, even down to the you know to the level of Uh, you know, someone who's just in charge of keeping an eye on a patient, just, you know, the, the person who um, helps feed the patient, like uh, anyone who goes into that profession, uh, especially nurses, uh, they, the majority of them are really going into it for the passion of taking, taking care of people. Um, And I think that, um, you know, when you When you see someone that says that um, in middle school or high school, you know I'm thinking about going into nursing or medicine, um, the majority of them are actually good intentioned people that have a heart for caring for people. so mm-hmm. that is a that for the most part um, are people that are in a, uh, a an area where or in a mindset or a calling um, of doing something good. Um, so that being said, um in regards to physicians uh with nurse nurse practitioners um physician assist- assistants um we are seeing a lot of uh kind of a transition to um they're, they're called advanced practitioners or uh, uh kind of APPs uh, is what we call them but um we are seeing a lot because it is cheaper for them to be hired, um, yeah. they, for the most part, they get more experience practicing than we do uh, prior to being on their own. Um, and, and the cost to train them is lower too. It right? is so much. Yeah. They, yeah. they go to less school. They, they kind of get to skip out on a lot of the pathophysiology and, and just all the, the book knowledge that we, we have to get forced into our heads. Yeah. Um, which is a good thing and a bad thing. It's, it's cheaper. It's a shorter time period um, uh, on the, on the negative side, sometimes, um, things aren't so textbook and, and that's where things can get a little sticky. Um, but we are seeing a lot of, um, replacements of positions that are opening because hospitals, um, clinics are realizing that they can do pretty much everything that we can and it's cheaper and, um, you know, why not? So, um, my experience with them has always been very collaborative where, uh, you know, we, we all know our own boundaries. We know that, um, f- the ones that I've seen have been very good at, um, understanding like when, when they can take care of something and when it needs to be, uh, escalated to someone else. Uh, but yeah, definitely it's, it's going to start, you know, little by little, um, taking over more of those positions. Um, one thing that I, I was talking to one of my attendings about though, in regards to that mm-hmm. is, um, CMS, which is kind of the, uh, the Medicare Medicaid system. Yeah, um, they have just just within this last month have kind of made a new rule where a hospital can bill for eighty um, percent of a service if a nurse practitioner sees them, um, but if they want a hundred percent of the service, they have to have a physician that's supervising them also see the patient and complete. More than fifty percent of the documentation. So every day, the the NP will kind of take care of them, do all the the heavy lifting work. But a physician still has to sign off on them. And it's kind of interesting because um, you know that comes down to if you think about it, you know, eighty percent of a five hundred dollar hospital day um, versus four hundred. Okay, it's not going to be that big of a deal. But if you multiply that out for a three hundred patient bed, it does add up. So Mm hospitals are kind of weighing out the pros and cons if if it's really worth it um so there there are hoops to jump through there
0: well so i would imagine they probably are having you know one physician overseeing the operations of multiple nurse practitioners in yeah. that case yeah yeah so i mean it seems like in that type of setup doctors are essentially just becoming like like management of sorts yeah um that's interesting cuz i I'm, I'm i appreciate hearing your perspective on this because I look at it just from a business perspective, especially with how much mm-hmm. private equity has purchased hospital systems over the last uh, decade, especially, those guys, they're, they're money guys, they're numbers guys. Mm-hmm. They're gonna look at everything by the numbers and uh, they're gonna uh, attain uh, aim to attain op- optimal efficiency in those numbers. Mm-hmm. And if I was making those decisions uh, for uh, under the premises that they are, I would say, yeah, absolutely. If nurse practitioners can now prescribe, can now do all of these things, mm-hmm. like let's go nuts. Like let's keep a few physicians on staff. Like let's keep obviously top surgeons on staff for our reputation's sake. Um, but for the most part, like I, I would, I would assume if I don't even know what the full difference in wages, I just know that it's not, not that close. Right. Um, in terms of compensation packages, but,
1: uh, yeah. But yeah, that, and and I thought the reason I was talking about that with my tending is kind of, uh, it is interesting how this uh, CMS kind of uh, dictates they 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 like to make amendments and they like to make these new things to in, in their defense they're probably trying to keep costs low um, but it's it's kind of like an arms race you know we're constantly trying not us but administrators are constantly trying to meet these demands so that way they continue they can continue to bill and um, so that's why we were talking about
0: that. And I thought that was interesting, but yeah, this kind of stuff doesn't need to go through any legislation either. No. Like this is just, uh, executive, uh, bureaucracy mm-hmm. essentially. And, uh, what's interesting is that um, Medicare reimbursement is so low that I'm surprised hospitals even care particularly about this. Cause if hospitals had to operate exclusively off Medicare, Medicaid reimbursements, n- Pretty much none of these hospitals would be in business yeah. private insurance is paying their bills right yeah. now
1: yeah um and that was one of the things that i kind of wanted to clarify on I, I think i generalized a lot of what i was saying about billing for a patient um you know when it comes to after the affordable care act um the capitation. The, yeah capitation um fee for service the kind of two ends of the spectrum yeah um affordable care act kind of brought in bundled bundled for uh bundled fee for service so it's right in between the two. Um, and basically, uh, they're paying, you know, if you get admitted to the hospital and you have, uh, you know, you come in for a heart attack, um, okay, we know how much this usually costs. So we're going to pay you this much regardless of how many labs you order, regardless of, you know, how long they're there. Yeah. Blah, blah, blah. So, um, well, so that's probably a
0: good, that's kind of a good thing. Right.
1: It, was, it, it sounds great in theory. Um, same with, same with in the office. If you come in and you're taking care of someone who has asthma, okay, we're going to pay you a set amount because we know that most people that have asthma cost this much. So here you go, like regardless of what you do. So it eliminated the need for extra, not the need, but it eliminated the drive for physicians to bad just incentives. order. Yeah, yeah. It, it made people think, okay, do we really need to order this extra chest x-ray or because at the end of the day, um, is it really going to change anything? And no one's really f- financially profiting from it. So definitely um, a good, it was a good move. Um, now and behind the scenes, the things that a lot like physicians in general, we don't really ever experience in, unless you investigate it on your own and something that I've been trying to understand. And it's just so hard to understand is, um, the negotiations that come with that. So, um, w- sure. Someone can say, I'm going to pay you a set amount who gets to decide that price. So the insurance company uh, makes a deal with the hospital, um, Mm-hmm. And kind of decides, you know, what do you think that the, the insurance company will say, like, oh, you know, we can we can pay you this much for a fee. The the hospital saying, well, we think that's going to cost a little bit more, blah blah blah. So there's kind of a back and forth. Um, and something that has been interesting is just why are these healthcare costs just continually going up? It's not that it's not that people are costing more money because um, if anything our advancements have have made it less expensive. We, we shouldn't be needing extra tests and because we're, we've gotten to a point where uh, we can, we can treat people a little bit easier. So why are over the last 20 years, um, and, and we can show you a, a chart about this, uh, just the exponential increase uh, way beyond um, inflation, way beyond any other industry in, in America, why is this continue, continuing to go up and um, that's something that I, I really
0: think came with the, um, uh, yeah, it was, know? it was, well, but, uh, we, we talked about that and I'm, if you're watching on YouTube, I'm going to have that chart pulled up here, but, um, essentially the, so I think that's a, that's a two-step problem. That's, um, it's tied to education and it's tied to the medical loss ratio, which is yeah, part the of medical the Affordable loss Care bracket. Act. Yeah. The medical loss ratio was one uh, major uh, point that we wanted to talk about in the last episode that we didn't get an ch- opportunity to. Mm-hmm. But essentially what it do- did was it capped percentage of profits for insurers, mm-hmm. um, which meant that it, it really changed the incentives for insurers. And I know people generally hate insurers. People have a lot bigger problem with the insurance companies than they do with their providers or with the actual hospitals or with the private equity firms that most people are not aware own the hospitals. Um People, people, the insurers are an easy group to vilify Mm -hmm. and um, they're deserving of some of that. Don't get me wrong, Mm -hmm. especially because of how much money they spend lobbying. People see that like you, you know, if you go on opensecrets.com or .org or whatever it is Mm -hmm. uh, and you look at like who are the largest, uh, you know, which which organ industries spend the most money on lobbying. Well, you'll see defense, obviously, it's going to be number one. (laughs) Uh, number two, I'm pretty sure actually is the insurance and pharmaceuticals mm-hmm. uh, are, are, yeah. are, are all up there, and so people are disgusted by those industries because they see that. But um, essentially, what happened was, and a lot of people said this about the Affordable Care Act was that it was a handout to the insurers, and a lot of people didn't understand why at the time because they were like, well, you know, like it's actually capping insurers' profits at 20% of the total spend, uh, like so they they have to um, they have to refund uh, like premiums if uh if if they don't hit that yeah. medical loss ratio
1: 80% of their inc- the money that comes in needs yes. to go towards to paying medical actual bills. care yeah. yes which again yeah. sounds like a good idea yeah, i mean I, I, I mean that
0: sounds totally reasonable because a 20% margin for a company is quite high mm-hmm. like there are very few industries that enjoy a 20% margin mm-hmm. like telecom typically enjoys the highest margin and that's because it's you know, virtual oligopoly, you have at t you have Verizon, you have Sprint, mm-hmm. you have T-Mobile, right? Mm-hmm. Like in the country. So those companies have historically enjoyed like a, like a roughly a 15% uh, profit margin. And that's considered very high year over year. Mm-hmm. Like you might have certain years as a, as a company, like, let's say you just innovated, you just created a new product. Um, you managed to uh, scale efficiently, didn't cost you a ton of money in debt. And your f- like first one year, you see like 60% profits. Like, yeah, that could happen, but consistently to see that is not very common. Though I will say the last two years, we have seen some very, very high profits in the aftermath of the pandemic, Mm. uh, especially for a lot of tech firms, a lot of firms that cut costs drastically, you know, like Mm. expenses that they were uh, figuring in, like office space and all this stuff that um, remote work facilitated lower uh, costs for them. Um, But with insurers, they... So that like it seemed reasonable to be like, oh, okay, you can't just can't take more than a twenty percent profit margin. But when you insurance is also kind of an oligopoly, like there are small insurers, but really you have United Healthcare, you have Humana, you have Anthem, you have Mm -hmm. like a few big players in the United States uh, healthcare marketplace, right? Mm -hmm. These are the people that made marketplace Affordable Care Act compliant plans. Mm -hmm. So there were still you know small um, HMOs that were uh, for like employer-based programs, but for everybody that had to get their healthcare through the open marketplace, they were using one of these giants. And these giants, um, what they, so they now had incentive because they're already spending tens to hundreds of millions of dollars lobbying Congress. Hmm. They now had incentive to work with the hospitals on raising the total spend. Yeah. Because yeah, like you are
1: saying. And, and, um, and, And again, to not, to avoid vilifying the insurance companies, um, it, they're they, an, easy they are, yeah. they an easy target Yeah, they' an easy target they are a business so if you think about it if you're capped at a 20% profit and you're a business you know and every business wants to increase you know their profits how are we going to do that well the best way to do that is um, to not fight these higher costs so the hospital says well you know we think that this is this hospital stays worth uh, 900 instead of 800 why would they fight back against that because if they're paying out more, then that gives them the the uh, allows them to have a higher total
0: total profit um, to, yeah. total
1: profit so that 20% yeah. can grow and year after year it, it might be a little bit here and there or it, it may it may not even be intentional but any business um, has that mindset and so i, I i'm not going to sit here and say that it's all intentional and and that they they knew that this was going to happen but in indirectly that's little by little starts to push up the cost because you're going to accept a, a higher rate of something that they know the, the the blue market value is going to be is way less than what they're asking for. But next year they'll be able to get that extra, that 20% will be a little bit more than it was. So yeah. And, who's, and who's paying the costs of this? And is,
0: it, it's the consumer of, yeah. the, of the service. It's it's being passed off in the form of premiums. Yeah. So that's, you know, us, we're, we're paying those mm-hmm. costs, not, uh, and, and to some degree, the government as well, but that's the taxpayer mm-hmm. by extension.
1: Yeah. Um, so It is. It's a little. It's a little sticky. Um, and it gets to a point where, uh, it it grows proportionally out of out of more than it should. Um, now, in going with that, um, something that I've kind of had a lot of conversations about, um, that can be very controversial is okay. So why not go to a single payer system? Um, wouldn't that eliminate this? Um, it it would make it more transparent. We can we we can just Get rid of all these games. Um, there's not going to be all these different payers and different insurers that are getting different kinds of payments because one. Ins- by the way, one insurance company um, might pay a, a certain amount for if you go to a certain hospital, but uh, if you have another, if you have another employer and you go to another hospital, it could be two times as much, three times as much. Again because those are being yeah they're negotiating set, individual contracts these yeah. are very
0: nuanced deals and i mean the, a lot of it is it, like within networks uh, you know mm-hmm. network coverage so you may not even go to be able to go to a certain hospital if right. you're with one provider
1: which is crazy so again that's where the temptation comes in of let's go to a single payer system let's go to universal healthcare let's yeah. let's go to let's do what canada does um and and i and i can agree and i can disagree and i i can i can lay out the pros and cons of that um and I'm not going to sit here and tell you what the right answer is cuz I don't know myself but if we were to go to a single payer system it would definitely eliminate all these games and it would make it in in the short term it would definitely bring down the cost of healthcare um cuz those prices would be set and there would be no, no variability um first the first con that I will say is if you go ask someone in Canada or uh in Europe that has universal healthcare um you know how how is your I'm sure they're they're happy with the, their cost um, and they're paying a lot less. But if you ask them, how long do you wait for uh, an MRI? Um, if you if you go and, and tear your ACL, um, how long do you wait to go see a specialist? How long you know, any anything, it's months. Um, a lot of them are mm-hmm. just on the waiting list because they can't get in. Um, and I've heard of people in Canada that will actually drive down in New York and pay out of pocket for something that they need because they can't get in. So it comes with, it comes with some costs. Yeah, absolutely. Um, So it's not, you know, you're you're getting some benefit and it's going to come with some, some negatives. The other thing is uh, I think if you look historically at kind of any government run system um, in the short term, like I said, it, it may drastically reduce the prices, but over time, Um, what's to stop the government from kind of skimping and kind of pushing a little bit more? And we want to make a little bit more profits. So I think long term, and of course, it's all hypothetical. I'm not here to say that that's not not the answer. Um, I think it it could help, but you have to also be very aware of what you're accepting with that.
0: Yeah, I'm actually um, pretty in favor of a single payer system. But the way I would structure that is probably a little bit differently than a lot of people would. Uh, I believe that uh, I like. I think more of a. Uh, actually, in a way, it's more of a Medicare model. Mm-hmm. Um, like where you have the single payer system that everyone buys into, um, that really only covers the most essential of care. Mm-hmm. So I'm talking like life saving procedures. Uh, you know, um, like uh, like acute trauma care, like that kind of stuff. Uh, you so you have a system that is uh, that pays for that universally. However, there's a lot of controversy around a lot of operations that people, you know agree or disagree on you know Mm. like you have very controversial things when it comes to gender clinics when it comes to abortion when it comes to a number of subjects you there is no way you're going to get the entire country of the united states on the same page with Mm. whether one of those things should be covered by insurance or not Mm. therefore i think that the private market should offer supplemental plans Mm. uh, the same as uh, as for medicare um that's that's how i would structure it and this is you know this is the product of years of discussion with insurance agents during my time in that sector and with physicians and uh whatnot i think i think that's the most amicable solution however uh that would not be favorable to uh, physicians to providers um like wages would go down um unequivocally mm. uh i i think and and yes like you like you mentioned there would be some disruptions in service there would be you know some increased wait time still um even with that with mm. Uh, because like we've talked about, part of the reason why we have those things so good, at least here in the United States, is because private insurance pays so much yeah. compared to Medicare, Medicaid. Yeah. So if you have the government becoming the single payer, um, it's you can't expect it to be much better, if at all better, than Medicare, Medicaid currently is. So hospitals and uh, clinics will be forced to scale back. A lot on their expenses and some of that is actually much needed yes um yeah. anybody who knows anything about hospital procurement will tell you that um the people that are in charge of those de- that are decision makers they're not the most savvy purchasers either mm. that or they're giving out handouts to their friends i'm not sure mm. but they are you know i've heard stories of hospitals paying like five times market price for ppe or for like various other things that are <laughs> disposables and consumables it's Yeah. Like for me as somebody, I, I, I sell medical devices actually in some capacity, like that's one of our products is a, is a device that is used, um, within hospitals. Um, it's, it's a very high margin product. And so like, if you're a business person and you sell these types of products, you see dollar signs. Yeah. yeah. Um, because you know, they don't care because there's so much money within the system that, that would all, all of that excess fat would have to be cut out if you wanted to effectively implement a single payer system. But that's really not even touching on our entire pharmaceuticals problem. Oh yeah. Oh, like that's gosh. that's a whole another beast. And uh, I don't even think I d- we want to get into that right. Uh, now. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't want to get into it too yeah. much. Um,
1: again, we're not go- I'm not saying that there's one issue. You're not yeah. going to vilify one, but I think they they definitely get a bad rap. Um
0: Yeah, but- I mean they they I would argue, you to deserve it more than insurance company because yeah. insurance companies they're profiteering. You know, they're making some people's lives difficult and challenging i would argue their negligence is not literally killing people like the like you know Purdue pharmaceutical uh, <laughs> the creators of oxycontin were sued into into bankruptcy but at the end of the day the Sackler family's personal assets were not touched they were you know deemed protected by the federal government's cuz they didn't pierce the corporate veil they didn't you know like uh you you want that to be the case for a lot of reasons but not when someone is doing something as shady as creating mass painkiller addictions in a country right. and you know lying to doctors lying in their marketing oh, material yeah. like the Sackler family should be broke and completely you know devastated financially mm. yet they are still multi-millionaires yeah. you know they're they, they're, they, they're they're probably laying low you know you, you they're not like socialites or anything you don't yeah. hear what these people are doing but they're they're sitting around with millions of dollars yeah. still
1: they got caught but they didn't they didn't piss off the wrong person enough
0: yeah yeah
1: and that's actually really
0: funny that you just said that because I just thought about Martin Shkreli um, do you remember that guy, Uh-oh. pharma bro from a few years ago? So, Uh-oh. okay. So Martin Shkreli, young guy, um, a brilliant investor actually made a ton of money, um, uh, as a, as a running a hedge fund, actually, uh, like by the time he was in his early thirties, he was buying biotech companies and I think it was, must've been around, yeah, it was, it was around 20, it was 2015, 2016 that this all, uh, went down. He came into the public eye. He bought a company um, the, the drug was, uh, Daraprim. Um, so it's, uh, I don't even know what the drug is for, but it's for a rare, very rare condition. It's not a particularly life-saving drug, Uh like, but it is, uh, and, and there is a generic option I believe as Uh well, but he raised the price like 700, like 700% or something like that. And, um, he got, uh, like all of this media attention on him uh and people like he was just public enemy number one and it was it was hilarious because um I mean more things happened this is the guy who bought the Wu Tang album by the oh, way you okay. might remember him more for that yeah. <laughs> but I mean he actually just got out of prison which is wow. kind of hilarious like he he served seven years um for uh, and it, actually he wasn't even prosecuted for the pharmaceutical thing because there was no crime there like he just raised the price people didn't like him for yeah that. but they actually prosecuted him for a securities fraud I believe um uh, and what's even more hilarious about that is that so he. He technically did like violate laws. Like, I mean, that's clear, but no one was actually damaged by his violation Mm. of these laws. Like what he did was he lost some investor money and then he, without telling them, he made money elsewhere and then he paid back his investors. So that's a Ponzi scheme, except the Ponzi scheme, the investors actually lose because the investor like keeps losing the money over and over again. (laughs) And at the end, there's no money. In this case, this guy, his investors actually made like some of them made like three to five times their money okay. back, and they still sued him, which is like imagine like some guy made you more money than you expected him to, but yeah. you sued him. Oh man. Um,
1: So what what he probably was was I think that's a pharmacy yeah. benefit manager. I mean that's something. Well, else. he owned the pharmaceutical. He owned company. it. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, he was the CEO. Yeah. With, with the with the pharmaceuticals, one thing that I've learned is. Um, pharmacy benefit yeah. manager, which is just uh, a whole nother evil um, or not evil, but I'm sorry, a whole nother beast in the yeah. system. Yeah. I mean, I, I, you're not calling them evil. You're saying the yeah. very
0: existence of such a role perhaps is evil yeah. in a way. I, I, I see what you're yeah. saying. I, I naturally,
1: things can go wrong with it. Um, so what they do is they kind of make a deal with your uh, employer yeah. um, and they say, you know, we're going we're gonna, to, uh, we want these medications to be on formulary, um, so, you know, if your patient, if you're if your employee needs to come in for hypertension, we
0: when you argue- say formulary, you mean like some sort of schedule?
1: Um, it's it's their preferred drug. So th- oh, okay. they can make decisions on um, what they prefer. So they make a deal with the pharmaceutical company. Then they make a deal with the employer or um, whoever is hiring them. Mm-hmm. And they make a somehow they come to an agreement and um, they're the ones that kind of make a deal. And they and they try to do it in bulk. So they say. Um, you know, if we use this medication um, and if you use this, go, you know, go our route. We're going to give you a, a 50% discount, whatever. Um, and it sounds good. The employer on their end, they don't really know. They It's not their fault. It's not their job to know what are the, you know, what are the indicated medication you should you should use? What's the bioavail? Like, what is the um, equivalent to this? What's the generic form of this? Uh, you know, what's the dosing schedule? You know, blah, blah, blah. Those are things that they don't even need to know. So they just say, oh, I'm getting a discount and I'm treating this person's
0: (laughs) hypertension. So sure. It's just such a pointless like role to begin. Like there's, you have no business creating that, that kind of like perverse incentive within an area that is like, you're talking about, like in many cases, life-saving drugs. Yeah.
1: And, 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 in medicine with medications, it is not cut and dry. There's no, um, there's no equation that you can use to say if the person has this, we need to use this because every person has different like other conditions that are involved. They all react differently to different drugs. Um, And what that does is it puts the physician in a corner because we can't even get the medication that we think we want to use covered. We have to use their formulary for that insurance. And of course, none of us have the time to like sit there and even know all that, but that goes to say like that, you know, that's not the employer's fault. Um, They that's all they can see is, Oh, I'm getting this bill at the end of the month and I don't know, like I'm paying for this 200 medications and how would I know that there's a better alternative, a cheaper alternative? Um, so that's, that's something that's very unfortunate. Um, that, uh, it's an, it's an, it's another middleman that's, that's in there kind of, Mm -hmm. you know, skewing it. And, and again, it's different in every insurance company, so makes it even more complicated.
0: Yeah, that's interesting. Um, yeah, I completely had forgotten pharmacy benefit managers even existed until you reminded me of the horror of yeah, <laughs> such a thing. But so the reason I brought up Martin Shkreli, though, is um, because it's funny, uh, like you mentioned, like pissing off the wrong people, mm-hmm. basically. He did that because he he pissed off rich people whose mm. uh, money he didn't even lose, by the way. But he they just, I, I guess they felt betrayed in some way by the fact that he you know it he did he still did do something fraudulent there right, like he right. lost their money didn't tell them and then made money elsewhere and like paid them back basically but uh like he he was prosecuted um and he was the only person ever prosecuted under some of these statutes because like and and he was also you know a prolific internet troll like he actually um he was out on bail and like he was running live streams um but so like he was running live streams and it was interesting because nobody really wanted to hear what he had to say. Like a ton of news articles came out about him saying Mm -hmm. like, this is, this is the face of evil, like raises prices on like some life-saving drug. Mm -hmm. And, uh, but the reality was, is that, uh, you know, he was claiming, and I, I think this has been validated at this point that, um, if anybody, I, I know this to be the case because I know that some of the, like even the large pharmaceutical companies will do this. If a patient does not have insurance or their insurance does not cover a life-saving drug, they will basically give the drug away. Like um, I, I dealt with when I, I had uh, to deal with Medicare Part D, and that was one thing I wanted to ask mm. you about, because Part D is structured kind of similar to like the way these pharmacy benefit managers do. Like there's various schedules or tiers of drugs, right. and uh, like drugs fall into a certain tier, and uh, whether the government or whether your Part D plan will pay for that tier or not, is something that you have to like plan ahead uh when each year when you enroll in your part d oh, plan. Okay. So it's it's a complete mess. Like imagine you can imagine with the sheer number of drugs out there selecting a part d plan is like like you like you have to have somebody plug in all of your medications and if you're somebody, you know, say you're 75 years old, you're on like a number of medications yeah. for a lot of conditions, like it's, it's quite a bit of work to you know collate all this data yeah. and figure out like oh is this like actually a decent plan because so sorry, of this that- arbitrary tier system
1: so the tiers are—it's not based on whether it's life-saving. It's based on what they. It's prefer. based on the price largely. So oh. brand-name drugs I will be like tier that. three, tier
0: four. Like generics will be like tier one, tier two. Yeah, it's it's pretty crazy. Um, and tier one, two is what they would prefer to pay for. Like that's what. Yes. It. Okay. Yes. So like you'll have find more plans that will mm. pay for like virtually all tier one and tier two drugs, uh, but like finding ones that pay for your specific tier three and tier four drugs wow. is harder. But so I had a I had a patient or not a patient a client sorry <laughs> you, you keep saying patient <laughs> i do not have patients um i had a client who um you know uh, this was the wife of a truck driver um you know she had was enrolled in uh, she she did not work she was a stay-at-home mom um she uh was enrolled in in medicare uh you know part b and part d and um she had a particular condition that required a um a drug that there was a generic option for. Mm-hmm. However, she w- was having like some adverse effects from this mm-hmm. generic drug, which is uh, you know otherwise a great drug, highly effective for most people in this scenario. Right. But she just really needed this brand name version of the drug. Yep. Now, this brand name version of the drug, costed five was would have been out of pocket if, uh, without Part D, uh, like I believe five thousand dollars a month, roughly in cost. Um, we just reached out to was GlaxoSmithKline GSK. Um, who manufactured the drug, we just reached out to them yeah. and asked them, you know, went through a very easy process, frankly, mm-hmm. and they just gave her the drug for free, mm-hmm. you know, guaranteed her supply of the drug for free. And yeah. this was what Martin Shkreli was doing, what his, his pharmaceutical company was doing as well. But he was vilified by the media so much that um, because they just wanted to paint a target on the guy's back, in my opinion. I mean, he was he was a troll. And uh, he, so like he I said, was, he was raising the prices so high, but so what he claimed he raised the prices for was because this was a drug of low interest. It had been around for a long time. This company still held the patent on this drug, uh-huh. but he, they were selling it for like something like five dollars a pill or something, and uh-huh. he raised it to like seven hundred dollars a pill, uh-huh. like like a, a absurd increase. But what he claims was that there's no way to fund research on developing oh, a new and better yeah. drug for this unless you do something yeah. like that. And like he said, you know what what he said, and uh, I, I like I believe this has been verified at this point. He if anybody needed the drug he would give and they couldn't afford it, mm-hmm. he would give it to them, mm-hmm. you know, his company would give it to them. Yeah. And that is my experience. I have seen large pharmaceutical yeah. companies do that. So I could I can believe that that was, was the case for him as well. Um, but it's just absolutely funny. I, I heard him do He's he did it. He's still under, um, he's still on probation and still under like weird, like legal limbo. So <laughs> he has not, he's not been able to leave his apartment, but he did a remote, uh, did a podcast, uh, Ryan Long, a comedian in New York, a Canadian guy, a comedian in New York, okay. uh, had him on uh, his podcast, The Boys Cast, and uh, he's got some stories from prison. Uh, <laughs> owning the Wu Tang album probably helped him out a little
1: bit. I think. That's hilarious. But,
0: but yeah, just all around, um, like like you say, like that is that's a practice that occurs in the pharmaceutical industry oh, yeah. every single day, oh, and yeah. you don't see anybody prosecuted for it or vilified by the press for it. it but was just um, he pissed off the wrong people. Yeah, 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 exactly. <laughs>
1: Oh yeah, it's it's crazy how much that's happening, and I've heard that argument that um you know a lot of people say oh these companies are allowed to overcharge because it it's backing up the research that they're doing, and America is the cutting edge of this
0: research, which it's really not. But um, well, I mean, most of good research really is outsourced to the public sector, right? Universities yeah uh, Yeah. do a lot of that research, but
1: yeah, it um and that's something I struggle with. You know, when they have a patent. I can understand not marketing up, you know, hundreds of dollars more, but they they deserve to have a, a period of time where they can make up the, the profits from what they had put in. Mm-hmm. Um, that's fair. Uh, I don't know how you well regulate because, that, I mean, even just
0: going through the process of FDA regulatory approval is so costly oh, yeah. and cumbersome. <laughs> well, right? yeah, that's part of the problem too. Yeah. I mean,
1: why are we putting all these extra regulatory... I, I understand why. I mean, it's for safety, but... Yeah, really... safety is important, but why can't the government be just a little bit more accommodating, yeah. you yeah. know? that's probably where the, the bottle it's basically a bottleneck. Yeah. It is. But um, one thing I wanted to at least uh, make, make sure people are aware of is um, it, it is interesting when you look at someone that's getting a, uh, and we'll, we'll move on from ph- pharmaceuticals after this. Cause it's at the end of the day, I, I don't think we're going to get to the bottom of that. No. Um, but so, you know, when a, a pharmaceutical company um, is when the, when the insurer is, um, charging the employer, and when they they're making that decision on how much a medication is going to cost, it, it's interesting because they can sit there and say, "Okay, um, this this drug is five dollars. We you know we know this is $5, $5 a five dollar five dollars per pill. Um, so what we're going to do is we're going to give it to the patient for a copay of three dollars a pill, and then they go and turn around and charge the employer or whoever is in charge." Okay, we're gonna ask you to pay fifty dollars per pill for this um, because, but if you buy it in a group discount, you know we'll give it to you for twenty dollars a pill. And again, the employer doesn't even know what this medication is. They don't even know how much it really costs. They just say, "Oh, look, I got a discount." So sure. Um, And and sometimes, depending on like you know what your employer is or what kind of deal they have, they'll charge you a six dollar copay for a five dollar pill. You're paying more than what it costs. Plus, they're charging your your employer. Um so one thing that's I've been pushing for all my patients to do anytime that I can tell that they're, you know, struggling financially um or just in general is to use GoodRx because it's crazy how often even if you have insurance and you're doing everything right if you go and buy it through GoodRx at a wholesale price you will pay out of pocket without your insurance it'll be cheaper which is just it's it's transparent to show that this is all like this is all a robbery that the pricing is just crazy um, so good RX is probably one of the most important things that I think people need to know about. Um, the other one is, I don't know how you feel about this, but, um, Mark Cuban's pharmacy, uh, is actually been life-saving. Uh, it's,
0: you know, I don't know much about it, but I've been hearing positive yeah. things about it.
1: Yeah. I've had some patients that need things that, I mean, ultimately are like life essential medications and they can't afford it. First of all, I would go, you know, I would go to the manufacturer. They have, most of them have financial
0: assistance programs yeah, they have forms that you can yeah. fill out like straight on. It's like, very easy to do. Like Pfizer, GSK, like all the big Abbott, ones. all of these big companies. Yep. Yeah.
1: And they're very easy to do, but if you can't get it there, uh, it's, it's a uh, cost So that's, uh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. I have heard, I've heard of it. Yeah. So, um, either good RX or Mark Cuban's pharmacy cost plus drugs. Um, insulin is, is the big one that I've heard. Um, he has kind of changed the whole game and, when I first heard about it, I was like, "Oh, great! Here's another uh, someone who doesn't know what they're doing getting involved." But he's done; he's saved a lot of people and and a lot of money.
0: Well, I mean, somebody needed to do that with insulin, especially. Uh, I mean, we've talked about how you know there's or incentives, perhaps. Last last episode, we talked a lot about how you know obviously the best outcome is for the patient yeah. to take you know improve their lifestyle habits and you know solve this problem yeah. like at, from the root cause. Rather than um, you know rely on insulin for the rest of their life, but at the end of the day, some people need insulin and it, mm-hmm. it is a uh, you know essential for them to continue living, and yeah that that that's a big one. You know, um, EpiPens is another interesting one that, yeah. that you see. Um, business people are creative. Like you got to hand it to them. Uh, so Senator Joe Manchin of um, West Virginia, mm-hmm. his uh, his daughter actually, uh, is an executive at a pharmaceutical company that recently secured a contract with, I I don't know if it was with the state or with certain uh, state institutions, but it was uh, essentially what they did was they reduced the price of the EpiPen and like, so they were able to like bid under like whatever previous contract was in place, but they added a parameter that EpiPens would only be sold in pairs. So like how, how devious is that? Wow. So they're doubling the sale. And you know, that EpiPens are not, you know, in certain environments, they need to be there legally uh-huh. for safety reasons, but they're not necessarily getting used. And they're only, I don't know what the shelf life it's is like on a, them. It's like a year. Yeah. 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 So, um, like they're just guaranteeing, they're like doubling their sales effectively, even the, but they're taking, they're taking a little bit less of a margin. I've always wondered why they came like a lot yeah. of them come in pairs. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I, I didn't know that was common practice, but I guess like, I know that, uh, Senator Joe Manchin's daughter was like she she was it was it was highly publicized the fact that she did this and like how dirty of a move that you know wait so like, how did
1: she benefit from that
0: she's an executive at at this company oh uh, yeah
1: well yeah i mean most epipens pens come in paris and yeah. i never knew why yeah that's crazy yeah because yeah i mean you're never you're not always going to need most likely you're not going to need that in a year uh, hopefully you don't but yeah. you're you're going to want your kid to have that on them all well, the time well and i
0: imagine the lead time is not that that high right like you can probably get that at a pharmacy fairly easily
1: um like yeah it's, it's
0: not going to take you weeks to restock if if you consumed the one that you had on hand
1: right right, right. yeah there's no reason for yeah. you yeah
0: there's well, some reason i mean maybe theoretically yeah, yeah. you have a little bit of like a, a gap of like risk time yeah, there. but yeah. um
1: but if you need to then your your, your doctor can prescribe you two. there's yeah. no need for it to always come in a pair but mm-hmm. all that's doing is going to waste and all those get thrown away year after year it's crazy yeah well if
0: you're talking about individuals especially like not even like you know the on-site epi pen at a gym or at like oh yeah, you know, some, yeah some place like that yeah um i've never even thought of that that's yeah that's what i'm talking about is like places that are like legally obligated to have have one on hand and uh, now has has to have mm. two on hand i guess <laughs> um yeah it's it's funny but I'm, I'm glad you talked about like good options for being able to like find savvy like that's that's the un- it's unfortunate that it is this way but we really have to be savvy in how we navigate the mm. healthcare environment here in the united states yeah and i've had to Learning that the hardware just being un- uninsured for so much of my twenties, and uh, you know it's it's not that big of a concern, but I have I've had some pretty catastrophic incidents, <laughs> uh, like like I mentioned earlier <laughs> owner, earlier in this episode, like I, I had a near death ex- experience in a car crash mm-hmm. uh, just a few years ago, and uh, that's like that's the kind of thing that will financially ruin a lot of people in this country, um, but I already knew how to navigate this system mm-hmm. because um, like it's it's kind of, it's, it's more, it's applicable in a broader sense to our society because debt is very easy to deal with in the United States, actually. Not a lot of people are aware of that, but this country, a big reason business is so prosperous here is because as a business person, you can take on a ton of risk. You can take, you know, loans, however you acquire your funding, mm-hmm. you can take on all this risk. You can fail you can essentially eliminate this debt because it's not tied to your person. You mm-hmm. know, it's, it's tied to an entity. In most mm-hmm. cases, the entity is defunct, debt's gone. You know, mm-hmm. the money can not be recovered if there's no money there. Um, and then within a few years you can be back at it again. Yeah. Like it's, it's very easy to recover. And this, it's the same thing when it comes to uh, debt collections, people are not aware of what numbers um, a collections agency is actually willing to accept. Cause the first offers they make you, you know, you're, you're going to be stressed out. Your, your, your credit is getting hurt. You know, you're afraid that you're not going to be able to pay your bills. Like, let's say, you know, you were uninsured and you had a, a incident at a hospital costing $20,000, not, not an absurd price, actually no. like kind of a low price for that's a an, hospital uh, stay. That's an ER visit. Yeah. Yeah. That's, yeah, that's, that's like an ER visit, maybe being admitted for one day. Mm-hmm. Um, it, like that, that cost. Uh so when you get that bill that $20,000 bill in the mail and you were like losing your mind you're like that's like half of what i make in a year mm-hmm. how am i ever going to pay this and like put food on the table um for the first option they'll try to give you is they'll try to say well you can make pay- you'll, you can just do it on a payment plan mm-hmm. if you in- kind of ignore these calls for a payment plan like the hospital it's going to leave the hospital's hands it's going to get sent to a collections agency this collections agency is an, you know not affiliated with the hospital other than that they are essentially buying the debt from the hospital mm-hmm. and you have to know the numbers that they're buying the debt for. If you know those numbers then you can know what what you can get away with paying. And most of the time what the collections agencies are buying those that bulk collateralized debt mm-hmm. is uh for um like anywhere from like 4 to like 8 cents on the dollar. Yep. It, like, like yeah. It's so it's somewhere around that range, but it's 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 literally pennies on the dollar Yeah, is what is. they're getting that debt from. And the hospital is willing to take that because, to them, they're just like it's going to cost us so much money in administration to try and continue to collect this at this point. So we'll take what we can get and move on mm-hmm. and recoup those costs off of actual, you know, pass those costs on to actual paying customers, the people, like who, people who are insured and people, you know, who are on Medicare, Medicaid. Mm-hmm. Like it raises the cost for everybody else, those who don't pay. But you know, if you don't have insurance and you can't pay like that's you know that's your situation like you don't have to feel bad bad about that that's just where you are in life and uh but yeah once it gets to that collections agency they will start making you offers you know they'll say like for 75 percent of the cost of this debt you know we can settle this today Mm -hmm. or we can get you on a payment plan they'll also try the payment plan trick you don't have to take that number because they paid Six cents on the dollar for that debt. Yeah. So if you are stubborn and you are in a position where your credit being impacted for some period of time while you undergo this negotiation with the collections agency, if you were in a position where that is not devastating to you, which I understand is not everybody, but if you are in a tight enough fin- financial spot where you know you wouldn't be considering filing medical bankruptcy here, that's a serious thing to evaluate whether you should do that. And um, yeah. I will typically only pay like 12, 12 to... Twelve to fifteen, sometimes up as high as twenty cents on the dollar mm-hmm. on any medical debt that yeah. I that I've had outstanding. Yeah, and um, I will basically just let them. I'll play hardball with them. I'll let them know. Yeah, I was like, listen, you're not going to get a dollar more than that off me. Yeah, I, I can do this for years. Yeah, and after seven years, actually, a lot of people are not aware of this either. After seven years, that cannot even hit your. Um, they cannot even continue to ping your credit report. Oh, really? Yeah, I didn't know that. it drops off your credit report after seven years. <laughs> Which is the same, I, I believe that's the same amount of time that it takes for your credit r- to recover after a bankruptcy. However, bankruptcy is definitely worse. Yeah. Like <laughs> bankruptcy comes with a whole host of other uh, complications that you don't want to have to deal with necessarily. Yeah. And um, medical bankruptcies are so common in this country. So I, I really think this information should be more widely available. Like, yeah. I, I kind of would like to do like workshops on this. Uh, you know, providing people with some of this info, like, especially, like, in the inner city here, Mm -hmm. I I just think that this information is so um, important to be spread around. It's it's a very nuanced system, like, it's like, you're talking about dealing with healthcare, which is already complicated, Mm -hmm. and you're not talking about dealing with debt, which most people don't understand. Mm -hmm. You're talking about collections agencies, like, it's just, it's tiers of complication, and I just, by chance, was, very broke and uh, very uninsured, and had to figure this out, yeah. you know, on my own. But um,
1: yeah, no one talks about it, and it's yeah. it's sad. Um, l- the last time I so the last time I looked into it, um, so medical bills in this country were the leading cause of personal bankruptcy. Yeah, um, not not necessarily business, but sure. personal. Um, and then there's a couple other numbers that went with that. Um, so I believe one so one in five Americans are currently being chased by collection or in collections for a medical bill. Um, Specifically, uh, one specific example, uh, one in four women with breast cancer who are under undergoing treatment for breast cancer are being chased by collections agencies. And that's just like, when you think of it that way, like of course it's always embarrassing when you end up with something that you can't pay for. I mean, people don't talk about this, but people need to realize that this is widespread and it's very different than any other industry in our, in our life. Um, anything else that you, any other industry that service that you pay for, you, you get to see a, you know price, price, up see yeah. a price list, which that one thing that the Trump administration actually did was uh, the tra-
0: transparency law. Yeah. They didn't get compliance on that though. Oh, okay. Unfortunately, like I, I, I don't know. I haven't actually looked into whether the Biden, the Biden administration um, rescinded an overwhelming number of uh, the Trump administration's executive orders. I don't know if that was one of the ones they rescinded. However, I do know that um, hospitals have not been complying. Really? With that. Okay. Yes.
1: Well, yeah. I, so I looked up my hospitals. It is on the website. It's it's difficult to find. They don't make yeah. it easy. Yeah. But I, I did find that. But so, yeah, you know, um, in any other industry, you get to see the price up front and then there's a contract. So you're signing up for a service that you're going to get and you're willing to pay the price that's set. Healthcare should not be any different, and the people people fall into this misconception that you get this this surprise bill from a hospital for a service that you never signed up for and um, a price that you never even knew. It it, it the same applies. So um, a couple other things that I'll add on to what you were saying: when you go to the ER, that contract is often in the form of uh, what's called consent to treat. So they'll they'll yeah. they'll put this thing in front of you, and they'll if you're conscious, they'll say. Um, you know, you have to sign this, they won't explain to you. It'll have this huge document of things that you're not going to read while you're sick. Um, you don't have to sign that. You can actually write um, did not read and that will never be legally binding. Interesting. Um, yeah. So that's one thing that's important because you're not going to sit there and read through that while you're in the ER. Yeah. I'm um, pretty sure I've
0: signed it every time. <laughs> of course, because it, it, all they tell you is this is yeah. consent to treat. But yeah. it,
1: but if you just scribble something and say did not, write, did not read, they're not going to they're not going to not treat you. They're still going to treat you. Well, they're they're f- probably not going to know. Yeah. First I, I of feel all. like,
0: I feel like they hand you a few other things too. Like they have you sign a few like more innocuous things and mm. then they hand you that consent form. It's,
1: it's very mischievous the way they do it. But, yeah. um, so that's one thing, that's one way around being legally binded to it. Second of all, what, you know, what Shabash was saying is when you do get that bill, um, you, you know, you do not have to pay that,
0: um, well, he explained it perfectly. You don't pay in full by any means. Like if you're paying more than twenty cents on the dollar on your on medical debt that has gone into collections, you're doing it wrong. Mm-hmm. And um, like I know a lot of people like feel like oh it's the right thing to do. I should you know pay it. But this is a a very broken system that mm-hmm. we're dealing with right now. Mm-hmm. And there's not going to be incentive to fix it unless people you know. I mean I I actually think that to this it, this is sort of gaming the system if you if you if you do this. But you can do this with a lot of types of debt and pretty much any type of debt. Except for student debt, you can do this one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> student well, debt is the one that's uh, that's uh, on its own on its own category. Yeah. but uh, we'll have to touch on yeah. that.
1: but yeah, I'll I'll give one more plug for if anyone needs help, um, restoringmedicine.org. Uh, they they go into a lot of detail about how you can fight these bills that you're getting that are you know th- that aren't fair. I mean, truthfully, um, it's not it's not something that the doctors want. It's not what the patient wants. And it's, it should not be something that you feel um, that that should be ruining your life. It should not be ruining your credit score. These are things that you can, you can, you have options to fight. So uh, that that is one other option that I will tell people. And it's something that I've kind of put into my practice because I don't, I don't know what I'm, you know, when I'm sending a patient to the ER, um, I don't know how much that ambulance bill is going to cost. I don't know how much it's going to cost when they get walked through the door. Um, So I can't, I can't, Advocate on their path there, yeah. but what I can do is is give them the information that you know this this is not something that should ruin your life. This is medical care, um, and and they honestly do rack up the price so much that they make they make the money off the ninety percent of people that are going to pay it. So yep. they don't care if
0: <laughs> yeah. I truly feel for anybody that has been suckered in by that collections agency to like paying a debt amount mm-hmm. to a hospital in full, um, because like I said, they're you know, are that that hospital is not going under mm-hmm. without that money. They've already factored in. You know, they they the hospital is not even getting any of that money. It's literally all going to the collections agency. Oh yeah, whatever that would have been, whatever portion would have been oh, paid, yeah. to the hospital had already been paid.
1: Yeah, they're getting a small portion yeah. of it. But I mean,
0: since we talked about student debt, I did want to jump back to that yeah. because that is one of the things that's tied to that chart that you um, that I'm I'm gonna put that chart back up again if you're watching on YouTube. Mm-hmm. It's uh, from the Bureau of Labor Statistics on it's a, it's on the increase in costs in a number of categories and it's just sh- kind of showing like, uh, so what, what were some of these categories? Um, that we saw uh, so it's there? from,
1: it's from 1998 to this only goes up to 2018, but yeah. all these different industries, um, hospital services, college textbooks, college tuition, but then there's yeah. other common so things. The, like Those cars. are the
0: areas where the most drastic increase in prices is, is College textbooks, college tuition, and in medical services, Mm -hmm. Um, areas where we benefited from and prices are down, is uh, TVs, cell phone service, uh, (laughs) computer software, toys, Um, cars, very very marginally like cars, clothing, and uh, home home goods and furnishings. Like, listen that that stuff is great and all, but like, I think most people would probably say like, I'd take cheaper education and healthcare any oh, yeah. day over all of that other stuff. Like we've, the trade-off has not been worth it. And also the quality has also declined on a lot of <laughs> yeah. that stuff. So it's, it's yes, we get it cheaper, but it's also poor quality. Yeah. Um, it's whereas- kind of
1: interesting how housing, food and beverage is kind of right at the inflation line. So they saying well, those
0: are core. Those are heavily weighted in, uh, in the consumer price okay. index. So yeah. So that, that it's, like if the inflation numbers reflect off of that stuff heavily. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, education costs and uh, healthcare costs are not really uh, factored into consumer price index because yeah. they're uh, they're not regular regular expenses as part of that basket of commodities. But um, if you look at this chart though, um, which I'm going to have up here on YouTube, you have like almost exact correlation from the late 80s to, uh, you know, 2018 with uh tuition prices and with uh health costs mm-hmm. and that correlation is uncanny because those are both areas where like payment is essentially guaranteed mm-hmm. right yeah um student loan debt is not expendable through bankruptcy yeah you cannot you cannot discharge student loan debt through bankruptcy and actually the reason for that is uh is your ilk actually uh physician's Back in the seventies and eighties, uh, began um, filing bankruptcy the moment after they got done with medical school <laughs> because they knew they could weather it and they would uh, they could live without credit yeah. for a few years and just making making oh. the money and just ditch all the debt immediately. It Crossed so my p- mind. <laughs> Physicians were the prime uh, primary uh, offenders oh, there. Great. <laughs> um, that made the government pass legislation that made student debt not uh, no longer dischargeable through uh, through through bankruptcy. I did Um, not know that. Yeah, (laughs) it honestly crossed my mind. I thought about it. Of course, I mean that's it's a lot of money. Like mm -hmm. you're like that. You're talking a house. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) yeah.
1: There, just to put it in perspective, uh, a U.S. med school costs about. Uh, two hundred three, three to five hundred like thousand no average? no uh, it's, it's 250 to 300,000 yeah uh international schools which is where i graduated from is 400,000 oh, okay so yeah yep yeah <laughs> it's, it's, it, it makes you think about bankruptcy real <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah
0: especially before you've made like much of a dollar in your oh, life yeah. you're just like man that's uh know yep. yeah but so that's that's why when you talk about the road to hell being paved with good intentions where regulation is concerned yes like Um, The government guaranteed everyone's access to student loans. Every single person in this country can get a student loan, right? Mm -hmm. Those are federally guaranteed. However, like we said, trade-off, they're not dischargeable with Mm -hmm. bankruptcy. So what incentive do schools have to lower prices then? None. Absolutely none. Yeah, it's a business. Because if they raise prices, uh, especially if if they all kind of, they don't even necessarily have to collude they just kind of have to watch each other and this process has to move in aggregate together. So sort of, right. Like once school, like Harvard raises their tuition a little bit and Yale's, like ours is still like a thousand dollars less than that. Maybe next year we raise ours and match Harvard's or maybe we go a little bit further. Even Mm -hmm. it doesn't matter. Like, like the prestige of the school doesn't even matter because um, school has become, you know, higher education university has become such an essential component for entering the information economy, which is what most people want to do. You know, most mm-hmm. young people were, would rather work in an office than in a factory floor or mm-hmm. in a lot of other environments. So they're like, I have to go to college mm-hmm. if I want to get a job that will pay me enough to be able to afford a house and live comfortably in high cost of living city that I live in. So yeah, people view colleges like not even optional. Mm-hmm. And uh, I mean, I, mean like, I can sympathize with that. It's, it's what they're told to do and they're just doing what they're told to mm-hmm. do. But um, that is, Cost, I I believe, is also directly passing on to healthcare. Like you said, mm-hmm. that two hundred and fifty to four hundred thousand dollar cost to train a physician, is absurd. Mm-hmm. When you consider the fact that you know you can train a physician in parts of Europe in Asia for like forty thousand yeah. dollars, like if that, mm-hmm. you know. So of course people are going to attain those degrees, and this is happening actually all over America. Is people who are attaining degrees abroad, not even just in yep. the healthcare sector. This is happening elsewhere as well. People will obtain an engineering degree abroad, for example, and then they'll come to the United States. They'll pass some equivalency tests if their industry requires it, even. Mm-hmm. And then, boom, they yeah. are now. They don't. They're not going to demand as high a salary as an American yeah. uh, worker would, because the American workers all spent a hundred k on their education. <laughs> yeah. The foreign worker spent twenty thousand, yeah. or spent nothing. Um, you know, I met some very savvy uh, Uber drivers yeah. in my day. Um, this guy that that comes to mind. Okay, he came from somewhere in uh, West Africa very very smart guy took his family to France his wife and kids are still in France being educated at the French taxpayer's dimes he's here working as an Uber driver while also st- taking like some IT certifications and like <laughs> like getting himself positioned to be able to move his family here after the French taxpayer have thoroughly paid for the education yeah. and they're also paying for his wife's cost of living because she uh, is you know has all these dependents and has no husband who lives yep. in, in France yeah. with her, so the French taxpayers paying for their rent and education. It's a education pretty good gig. Yeah, so like, <laughs> like in his case, he's he's totally gaming the system. He's mm-hmm. getting free college education for his kids. Yeah. getting his wife taken care of by the by the French government, and he's over here, like you know, planning his next move. Yeah. And like like a really hardworking dude. Like I gave him a bunch of advice on like how how best to navigate like the IT yeah. space, but <laughs> and at
1: the end of the day, they're gonna end up right back. Where you know at the same place as American graduates exactly without all of that debt yeah.
0: hanging over their heads so um, yeah it's
1: <laughs> so like where does I mean I, I guess we've been talking a lot about healthcare like where where's all that money dumping into because you know the professors aren't
0: making millions like yeah yeah I mean we kind of touched on this actually in the last episode I yeah. think we touched on um, I, if I I I'm gonna pull up this chart if I can find it um, on YouTube the um, ratio of administrators is really where mm-hmm. this has gone yeah. is uh, the ratio of administrators to educators. So you see the same problem in healthcare with yeah. the ratio of administrators to providers and physicians. Uh, mm-hmm. It's uh, like, there's really, in my opinion, there's just a lot of people with jobs that don't need to exist. Like people that are essentially waste of space. And I don't know how they've convinced their jobs to even exist. Like how, like who has advocated for or lobbied for these jobs to yeah. even exist. I'm not, of
1: of course they're not going to be the one that says i don't need to be here i don't need to be employed oh oh, i mean everybody's going (laughs) to fight administrators
0: are administrators kind of stand together and this is like the same problem we see in government right except the difference is at least in the private sector if you're grossly incompetent or you cross certain lines you will be fired Mm. but like government like you're virtually you know you're not even getting fired for Mm -hmm. like some really heinous and absurd behavior sometimes (laughs) but yeah like uh you you gotta ask yourself like When you hear about what some people's jobs are, you're like, what, what you, you make, you make 60, 70 grand a year to do what now? Like, (laughs) it's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean the fact that every university and and now increasingly, you know, private corporations as well has like a diversity, equity, equity, and inclusion office, like not, not even just one, like one dedicated personnel to that. Like they've got a diversity, equity, and inclusion office. Yeah. What do those people do all day? Yeah. Like, like push forward initiatives, like, like all it takes is one person to compile a report and say like, Hey, we should probably hire more of this minority group. Like, I just don't see how you need to hire an entire staff to, to, to do that. Yeah.
1: um, Well, I mean, it looks
0: good for, for public relations. I mean, it does. And actually, you know, uh, now that I'm glad you said that because uh, it's, it's, it's not just public relations now. It's something, this is a topic that uh, Glenn and I have discussed at length. It's uh, you have uh, ESG, uh, which is uh, environmental social governance. It's a new standard that's been pushed forth by some of the largest um, private investment firms in the United States. In particular, actually BlackRock, the the largest uh, investment firm in the United States, uh, manages trillions of dollars in assets. Hmm. BlackRock uh, uh, CEO Larry Fink, um, he has been a major advocate of ESG. Um, and what ESG essentially is, is they are assigning an arbitrary score to companies based on how well they perform on our like i said arbitrary metrics and on on environmentalism on Mm. social and then on social governance which you ask yourself like how how are you quantifying like you know how good a company scores on social governance well they'll say like how diverse is this company like you know what is the ratio of like male to female executives Mm. ironically Go look at uh, BlackRock's uh, board, and uh, you know, (laughs) yeah, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's 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 like that. But, um, so it's it's really funny because Tesla, um, you know, the first like major EV maker in the world and like major innovators in that space, they have a very poor ESG Mm. score, uh, and Ford and GM have better ESG (laughs) scores than tesla does interesting and you, you just got to look at that and laugh and be yeah. like what what does this even mean but it actually matters to these companies companies that are this large their esg scores is assessed by banks when they go seek financing deals so when they try to get money um the banks are like oh actually we can't offer you that amount of money on those terms because your esg score is too low wow and that's concerning to us is it so is yeah. it something
1: that the government has
0: mandated? Okay. Not at all. This is entirely the private sector doing this. Wow. Um, and it is it is partially in response to certain government regulation, especially in the EU. You know, the EU has a lot more regulation in some of these spaces. In digital privacy, you know, they have GDPR. In um, in food, agricultural safety, they have higher standards than the United States mm-hmm. does. So, I, in sort of, like, I, I do see some value to a score like this potentially but the way it's been administered and the way the the actors that are pushing this forward i don't believe their intentions are good yeah. I, I think it's mostly about control for them that's crazy yeah i didn't know that yeah so the repu- it's not just reputational the big reason a lot of these private companies are spending so money good. on you know various things on environmental like i, I look like, believe me i'm i'm very pro environment okay <laughs> like so yeah, yeah. i'm not knocking people doing good things for the environment, but a lot of this is just really post- moral posturing, right? It's not yeah. actually, you know, doing anything good. Even uh, the carbon carbon credits, mm. uh, carbon taxes, carbon credits, have been so poorly administered that um, I remember when it was first implemented in, uh, uh, I think it must have been in the UK, um, ArcelorMittal, okay? Mm. Um, massive steel company owned by an Indian guy, actually. Mm. Um, they, if I recall correctly, they did not even to change anything because of the way the carbon uh credits were structured the cap this was cap and trade policies so what how what the government was coming in and saying this is where your emissions should be this is where we would want to see them at okay. anything in if you're above that you need to reduce your carbon emissions if you're below that though you have all these extra permits that you can sell to other companies that are in violation of that <laughs> while they get their stuff in order so but the thresholds were set so high that a ton of these companies literally had to change nothing and they just had free, uh, you know, permits to sell to other companies that were smaller companies that may have been in violation mm. in some way. And like, like, so a ton of these giants, and I, I remember uh, ArcelorMittal Steel being one of those companies that was just like, okay, we're going to change nothing, do nothing better for the environment, but we're going to make more money for yeah, free of course. as a result of this environmental policy. Jeez.
1: I mean, it's, it's another example of, uh, the dangers of putting numbers on, on everything. I
0: mean, you, you can't just quantify these kind of things. And yeah, this does tie into our conversation on on metrics and, uh, and and bureaucrats love metrics, man. They, they really do. Uh, and they're, they're the reason why we're in this situation to some degree. And there's so many of them. And, uh, do you see it
1: going in like the same direction as where it is now, or is it going
0: to swing the, the pendulum going to swing the opposite direction. I don't know how you reverse this because these people are so deeply entrenched. Um, and they, they have a more, they have more political influence within Mm -hmm. their organizations than the actual people that are doing the work, right? Like an administrator has more say on policy than you do as a physician, even though as a physician, you are like a high tier, like, you know, highly compensated, respected employee within a hospital. Um, but certain like low-level administrators have more influence than you do it's the same thing with hr in a Mm. company right hr uh, wields you know unnatural levels everyone's scared of hr everyone fears them yeah despite the fact that these are people that you know like even if you make five times as much money as that hr person you're not messing with them yeah um toby from the office (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah it's uh
1: that's interesting
0: yeah, I, I just, I don't see a reversal in that. Um, mm-hmm. you, you did see a lot of uh, under the Trump administration, they cut more regulations than any presidential administration mm-hmm. I think in in history. Mm-hmm. Uh, like they, they were just cutting regulations left and right. And at one point, they had an executive order in place that said if you wanted to add a new regulation, and this was so broad, I don't know how this was actually administered. But they said if you wanted to add a new regulation, you had to cut two other, two old, two old, out of date ones, which. Was probably good in a lot of ways. May have been bad, and, and like it happened on such a broad scale over such a fast period of time, over four years of yeah. you know the Trump administration, that I I think it remains to be seen like how much of it was good, how much of it was bad. Um, somebody would have to do like a real extensive study on that. Yeah. Um, I'm sure there was areas where it was good, and there was areas where it was bad. Yeah. But yeah, that's uh one of those things. I don't think that um, bureaucrats and administrators don't ever uh, cut themselves out of a job, mm. <laughs> they, and they don't solve problems. Either because if they solve problems, then they're effectively cutting <laughs> they're themselves out of the out job. Of yeah. Yeah. Jeez. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I'm glad. I th- I think we were able to cover yeah pretty much everything yeah I that th- we really wanted to touch on and uh yeah.
1: So, well, okay. If we have time, the one other thing, yeah. um, and it kind of ties in with uh, something else we were just discussing before we started recording, but sure. um, you know I I as a resident, like I, I didn't really have a good grasp on, um, you know, during the pandemic shutdown, um, most of the money that the hospital brings in is, is definitely from specialists from procedures. And a lot of that got shut down during the pandemic. So uh, what I was talking about, last yeah, something yeah. you asked me and, um, I didn't know how to answer that question. You, and you kind of, an, you asked me how did, um, how did hospitals bounce back from that? Because, uh, really when it comes down to it, um, me as like a general practitioner is not the one that's going to be bringing the money in for the hospital. Uh, we are maybe cutting even for them. Yeah. Uh, the money that they're getting is really from people that have to go to the cath lab to get a stent, uh, people that go to get their gallbladder taken out, people that want to go for a, a knee, sur- um, knee, rep- uh, what's it called, knee replacement. Yeah. Um, a lot of those are elective. Yeah. Um, and during the pandemic, that got shut down, and we did see that. And, and you know, rightfully so. You know, we didn't know what was going on. We didn't know. Uh, the risks and w- what was worth it, so we just kind of shut down business for that. Um, and and you did ask me last time, uh, how did how did the hospitals kind of compensate for that?
0: Yeah, because that's what I I had read. That yeah, lost a ton of revenue.
1: Yeah, and I, and I had to think about it. I mean, it's 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 strange because um, you know you do have to, as a uh, even a non for profit or a, a for profit hospital has to. Have some way of uh, rebounding from two, basically two years of lost, uh, lost uh, income there, um, and I, you know, kind of came to me later. Um, I noticed that after the pandemic and after the shutdowns, um, once things started going back to business, uh, one of the big ones that I would assume had to do with making up for lost, lost income was uh, nursing shortages. So um, they were they were cutting the staffing on the floor. Um, you know, a lot of nurses left. Uh, a lot of nurses just weren't being staffed, and what that ended up doing was uh, it overworked the nurses that were there. So, um, to the point where, I mean, I've I can I can vouch that there were times where I was concerned for uh, a patient, you know, certain patients being taken care of properly because we were so short-staffed. Um, and nurses were just just being worked to the bone. I mean, they were. You could tell like they were just tired. Nurses that had been doing this for decades all of a sudden were just um, exhausted. And I think that's kind of we're seeing the repercussions of that now. Um, A lot of nurses have left. They've they've retired. They've gone on. um, And there's lots and, and all that's done is caused more of a strain on on that side of it. Uh, there's, there's this whole other side of the nursing industry that I don't understand, but well,
0: that's why you were hearing a few months back about how, how much money travel nurses were, yeah, they that's were what, getting that's, paid like doctors. That's what I was saying. I don't understand certain, that. certain areas were so hit by the the level of retirement by people burning out and leaving, yeah. um, that they were like, we'll pay whatever we have to, cause we need to keep this yeah. place staffed.
1: And and, and and again, like I'm not very business minded, so to me, it just doesn't make sense. Like they are paying them. I've heard um, upwards of $200 an hour for travel nurses. Yeah. Um, and a lot of nurse practitioners who, again, are trained to, to basically be the physician um, are leaving their jobs to go back to be nurses or traveling nurses because they will make more doing that, which yeah. is just crazy to me. I mean, why would you? And, and there's downsides to that too. I mean, they're, they're great nurses, but if you're going to a new hospital system with a new EMR uh you don't even know your way around you don't know where we keep our our supplies how is that best for the patient how is that best for anyone
0: sure you're like a you're like a consultant at that point you have right. like less skin in the game
1: yeah and why and and to me it's just business wise it doesn't make sense why would we not just pay our you know pay our nurses more and and let's keep it staffed properly but Maybe this is all repercussions. Um, well, what
0: you're saying is a rational proposition um, and that's this is one of the problems with private equity and money guys having taken over so many of these industries mm-hmm. is that they have no business really operating. I've, I've seen the same thing in manufacturing mm. and it, wh- it, what you're describing is what's happening in healthcare right now as well. These are uh, money guys that are looking at the, purely at the numbers and they're making these poor assessments that may seem wise from a business standpoint, but it doesn't take it doesn't express a broader understanding of the circumstances mm-hmm. like you're saying you're on the inside so you have seen you're intimately familiar with what what happens and you you actually talk to these people you mm-hmm. talk to nurses mm-hmm. right um, n- not one of these private equity guys uh, or their consultants probably talks to a single nurse mm-hmm. they look they're looking at numbers they're looking at charts they are speaking to a few administrators and bureaucrats and they're making their assessment on how they should conduct policy mm-hmm. and uh, yeah that's it's 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 a very messy way to conduct policy. It's crazy, yeah. Um,
1: and uh, another thing that, like, I, I guess I haven't had uh, the freedom to speak up as re- in regards to the nursing shortage is um, it was kind of interesting. And, and again, this might be controversial, but um, when the vaccine came out, um, you know, as healthcare workers, we're kind of expected to to receive um, or to accept certain preventative yeah, you're things. About the mandates. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So you know, uh, as a physician, I, I I accept those extra responsibilities. Sure. Um, a lot of the nurses were, um, very hesitant and rightfully so. I mean, you know, we we knew very little about this and we knew very little about the effects and the f- efficacy. So a lot of the nurses were kind of, is this really worth it for for this career for something that I'm already getting, um, worked down and and yeah. exhausted for and, and I can empathize with that. So uh, we we actually lost a lot of nurses for that reason, too. Really? So on top of them being short-staffed, they were also being forced into something that they didn't understand or didn't agree with. And at least in our hospital, I mean, I think most of Ohio, um, it came down to a deadline and they said, if you don't want to get it, you'll you'll, you'll be fired. Yeah. And um, there were nurses, I mean, good nurses that um, left their position for that. And it was very interesting because probably about less than a month after that um, was when kind of the, uh, that the virus had kind of mutated and a different variant had come around. And all of a sudden the administration was changing their rules. They were saying, um, oh, you know, instead of 10 days off, maybe five days. And and then they, they even went less because they were so short staffed. It got to a point where they were actually telling the hospital staff, if you test positive for COVID, even if you have symptoms, as long as you're vaccinated, come back to work. Yeah. And so we weren't knowing
0: for, full well that you are still contagious. Knowing during that. <laughs> yeah. Time period. yeah. So,
1: and, and to me, like, again, it's controversial because as a healthcare worker, should you be held at a different standard of expectation? Sure. sure. Yeah. But if you're going to go so far to say that we can't risk our patients safety because if they're not vaccinated, there's a potential that they could get the infection and potentially pass it on. And then all of a sudden a month later, you're going back and saying, Oh, so short staffed just come back to work like yeah that to me was just mind-blowing and and of course it's it's very difficult to to bring these things up in in the in the medical field because it was so new it was so many things were going on and um but to me that that made no sense logistically
0: i kind of understand the plight of those nurses that didn't want to adhere to the policy because you went from being you know hailed as like the heroes of the pandemic Mm -hmm. as frontline workers For all this time to being tossed in the trash, essentially, and saying like, "Hey, if you don't like get with the program," and um, and and you were you know you were getting labeled as an Mm anti-vaxxer, for example, for not wanting to get something that was still under EUA, still, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, a lot of the documentation and studies, the clinical trial data still wasn't released yet. Yeah, it's now being released. Um, and they were they were actually pushing to wait like seventy something years to release the 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 clinical trial data. (laughs) They were forced by a judge to release it faster. And I think mm. they're releasing it at like, a, I think actually by this fall, the all of the uh, Pfizer clinical trial data will be released. Mm, somebody's, I mean, I i hope there are people already pouring over that data, but um, you know, these are people that you have no indication to accuse them of being anti-vax. Mm-hmm. They have a number of vaccines, you know, they have, they had to be vaccinated for a lot of things to ever get a job at the hospital. Yeah. I presume. Yeah. And um, yeah, just uh, the other concerning factors that many of them have from having worked in the hospitals during the pandemic got COVID yep, and, you know, had some, na- some level of natural immunity, which we n- now know, uh, you mm-hmm. know, studies indicate is more robust than yeah. protection from the vaccines. Yeah. Even the higher efficacy vaccines. Yeah. So and I'm sure,
1: I'm sure everyone's, you know, yeah. sick of hearing about this. I mean, we're, yeah, we're, yeah. We're supposed no, to be talking about been beat to death. Yeah. But I think, I think I, would, I mean, it would benefit for, for us to at least have the discussion that, um, you know, things do change and, you know, from, you know, when it, when it first started, when I was seeing, um, you know, the amount of hospitalizations and uh, I was seeing sick people, um, I was all on board for it. I was, you know, it was, it was kind of a grasp of desperation of whatever, you know, I, I will I'm willing to accept the risks. Let's just, even if
0: it's only of marginal benefit. Right, like, right. Yeah, I mean, just yeah.
1: just like the just like the flu shot. Um, and 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 then it it kind of evolved, and I think that we kind of failed because we we can we tend to get so set in these um polarizing positions. Uh, like you said, being labeled as an anti-vaxer. Well, what if the vax the vaccine changes or the the virus changes, which it does. Mm. Um, people were so polarized and so set in their ways, especially in the medical field that they were unwilling to kind of evolve with the evolving nature of this, this beast. And, um, that's something that I think people need to do more, um, especially in medicine because we've, that's, and medicine in general has always been like that. We evolve with it. We, we learn to change our mindset. And this is probably, I mean, at at least in the short time that I've been in medicine, like, I feel like that. Didn't happen. People were just so set in labels, and I'm on this side, and you're on this side, and uh, it's very dangerous, especially when that gets brought into uh, these, you know, something like healthcare.
0: Yeah, I hope that we're able to move forward from this because yeah. we talked a little bit last time about how how much damage to credibility had been done mm-hmm. for the industry as a whole, and uh, you know, two institutions that lost the most credibility. Like this is not my opinion. This is based off statistics. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I don't recall um, which uh, which who conducted this uh, study, but it was it was a reputable polling institute um, conducted studies on um, trust levels on the medical establishment and on and obviously on the government mm-hmm. um, steep decline in those areas, uh, you know, in in the wake of this pandemic and just how things were handled. People were extremely displeased with it all around. Um, CDC. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I I I think it might have been the question might have been phrased more broad, but yeah, I'm sure trust in the CDC, the NIAID, the yeah. NIH, all of these uh, yeah. institutions has been uh, drastically reduced. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's not helpful, you know? Yeah. If, if you, like, I, you know, I'm i somebody that stands in opposition to institutions like this at times, but I, ultimately, I don't believe that every single institution we have should be torn down. Right, like, right. They, <laughs> they, have, they have value, but they should only have value if the people within them the people leading them especially are credible and honest mm-hmm. and uh and and that's not something that we've seen mm-hmm. um you know a really interesting thing uh Kentucky uh congressman Thomas Massey um he is a um I believe he has a degree in um some sort of biological engineering uh from MIT like you know brilliant guy mm-hmm. um built his own uh he has has an entire like off-grid solar system grows a ton of his own crops like wired it up to a a Tesla Model S battery that he like got off a total Tesla, like crazy, crazy guy, but he's, he's really smart guy. Um, he, and he recorded these calls. Um, like I I can't remember who, uh, he spoke about it on somebody's show, but he called, contacted the CDC about like what he, you know, he gave them the benefit of the doubt and said, Oh, like, I've noticed an error in terms of like how you're, you're phrasing, you know, a statement, Mm -hmm. um, related to, um, covid infection right and uh oh they were like oh wow like you were so glad you caught this error for us and he was like oh so you're gonna correct it right basically i'm paraphrasing like yeah was well, yeah. happening and uh they were like yeah 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 we'll, we'll we'll correct that and you know contact get gets back to them and he's like hey i noticed this error that i that i caught it still hasn't been changed and they're like oh well actually like we we don't want to give people the perception that like this is okay for them to do mm-hmm. and like i like, i don't even, like off the top of my head, I don't recall like the specific yeah, yeah. Uh, thing, but it was just like, that's so bad when you have like an agency that's willing to say that to a sitting congressman who's like a highly, very highly educated uh, guy, um, mm-hmm. a guy who has a platform mm-hmm. who, you know, can call you out on this yeah. and you're still going to say like, oh, well, sorry, actually the bureaucrats have decided that like that, that line needs to stay yeah, phrased that. that phrase that way. yeah um, But yeah. I mean, I'm glad we at least did this talk at the yeah. tail end of the show because, like uh, you yeah, yeah. said, like people are sick to death about. Yeah, about yeah. It. I haven't even talked about this. Like I know about, about the well, pandemic in like ages. But I just, it, I, think it's entertaining
1: yeah. because it's something that me and you have disagreed on within the last year. I can say oh, we had spirited debate about yeah. this for for months. Yeah. We, I mean, how many studies did we send? each oh, other yeah. Back and forth. Yeah, and, but yeah. that's. I mean, ultimately, that's the goal of this kind of conversation: is it should be an open conversation to the point where you're both people are willing to learn and and you can learn from each other instead of just choosing a side and saying this is the right way i mean that's not that's not how medicine that's not how anything in this in in our life should be it It should be about open debate and open
0: conversation and learning very well said and I don't know if you knew this already, but that's like very much like the like Glenn and I have had like a little uh, spiel on like that's yeah. what this show is about yeah. and uh yeah, I mean, That's I'm cool. looking forward to like being able to dive into more subjects with uh, and I'm glad you we were able to make it again and we were able to have like a continuation of our yeah. last conversation. So I appreciate it. Yeah. Thanks for uh, thanks for coming on, it's man. Always a good time. Appreciate <laughs> it. You. Yeah.
1: See ya.